Okay. Welcome back to the Food for Thought podcast. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Samir Alpati. And I'm your other host, Anish Bay. Exactly. And uh, it's been quite a while since we've done an episode. Uh, I think almost today is April 26th. We uploaded one at the end of August of last year. So it's been it's been a minute. Uh, needless to say, uh, uh, it's been quite an interesting school year for us. But that's another topic for another episode. Uh, what we will, what we what we do want to talk about today is something that we, that Anish and I uh, regularly um, talk about, debate about, um, whatever, and uh, and that's movies, music, and uh, whatnot. And uh, we figured that this would be the perfect topic to talk talk about today, as in the last month, both the Grammy Awards and the uh, 93rd Academy Awards, so the Oscars, um, just wrapped up. The Oscars just wrapped up yesterday, in fact. Um, we were recording on a Monday. And, uh, no, yeah, we'll go from there because, you know, it's something we've always wanted to talk about. Yeah, 93 years. It's hard to believe, you know, it's been that long since the first Academy Awards with movies. Back in that day, like Gone with the Wind... I mean, The Wizard of Oz, just the history of the Academy Awards is just impressive that it's been going for 93 years. Yeah, and not just the awards, but you think back to like like the very first films, right? You think back, yeah. obviously there were a couple of controversial ones here and there, Yes, back then, even for back then, but uh, um, I will say um, we... I think having the Oscars, even during this time, having it in a remote setting is kind of just a testament or like a tribute, right? To those first movies and um, other examples of uh, fine arts. Yeah. And, you know, let's talk about some of, you know, the best movies or the best uh, recurring people in the, you know, award scene, whether it be Golden Globes, Oscars, or just critical acclaim. One of the probably one of the most famous movies of all time at this point is the original star wars and what was interesting is it broke a big academy tradition because science fiction movies and fantasy movies they often do not and or back then did not and often still do not win awards in almost any category yet it won the uh, carrie fisher in that movie won the award for best actress and since then, you've had movies like Lord of the Rings and um, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We've had superhero movies, fantasy movies, science fiction. We've had all of these different new genres start to gain more traction at the Academy Awards. And you can tie it back to some of the older movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, Star Trek, Star Wars, and... It's interesting to see the evolution of what people consider a good movie. Yeah, and uh, yeah, if you haven't noticed by how long Anish has been talking about sci-fi movies, Anish and I are both very big fans of movies like that. Um, but yeah, I completely agree because you look back, right? Like even in recent years, like you look back at like movies um, made by Marvel and Disney, right? Like these sci-fi fantasy movies, which, um, like commercially do very well right and i think even critically they um they receive like, better yeah they have like a certain like they've 
ascertained, um, you know, positive reviews, right? Yeah. Or they've achieved positive reviews, right? But I, I think maybe the Academy or whatever, like whoever makes these decisions for like the award nominations or whatever, I think... Um, it's been less respected if it's a science fiction or a fantasy or something. Yeah, of... especially plot-wise. Like most of the yeah. times, yeah, most of the times the awards that these movies are nominated for, right? I guess aside from, uh, you know, as Anise said, like Star Wars, like the original, original Star Wars with Carrie Fisher, um, this 2001 Space Odyssey, uh, Star, uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, yes. I think, what, was it Return of the King? Yes, and what's what's interesting yeah. is that Lord of the Rings was a weird case because even though probably the first movie, in my opinion, has some of the best scenes and uh, most well-written story of all three, Return of the King does a great job at tying everything together. They didn't. The other two movies barely won anything comparatively. Lord of the Rings won, I believe, thirteen awards. Is that correct? Thirteen. I- I don't know. They tied the record for the most awards won with All About Eve. And I believe Titanic. Yeah, I think, yeah. But like now, the other movies were arguably of equal quality, and yet they didn't. And it shows that the Academy probably just didn't want Lord of the Rings to, you know, dominate the Academy Awards when, ironically, with The Godfather, they allowed. Many multiple nominations, many multiple wins. All I'm saying is The Godfather is a different type of movie, okay? Yes, I, have, yes. I have a special place in my heart for that movie as well. So let's not... Yeah, let's I'm just saying that. in terms of how they... Uh, bo- uh, both movies did extremely well, both critically and commercially. Both yeah. movies have extremely yeah. well-written plots. It's interesting just how one series generally got more attention from the Academy than the other. Yeah, and I think yeah, that's an interesting point because um most of these t- most of the times these fantasy movies or sci-fi movies they they get like nominations for like um, visual effects or like sound composing or original yes. score, right? And like yeah, last night like there was like a prime example, right? So uh, in 2020 there was this movie that came out called Tenet. Ah, right? uh, yes. Yeah, and I thought I thought it was a very good movie. Um, and I saw it when it came on demand or like on to streaming services, right? And I thought it was a very good movie, right? Like, obviously, it's a very comp- it's a Christopher Nolan film, so the plot itself is going to be kind of complicated, right? Maybe not enough for like a good, um, maybe like a maybe not for like a best picture award or anything like that. But I thought it was very good, right? But that's what I'm saying. Movies like that, which are typically sci-fi or fantasy um, uh, yeah. oriented, right? They will get they will win the visual effects. But they will not win. They will, but they will not win best pictures. And I think best picture, best director. I mean, if we consider just Christopher Nolan, let's just go into his work because I feel like he's a great example of this. I don't think he's his movies. I mean, his first movie, following on a seven six thousand dollar budget, is currently at eighty three percent on Rotten Tomatoes, which is impressive. Just showing you know the quality of such a director. Then, uh, of course, we have Memento which is another great movie, but mm-hmm. again, it's the idea of that plot um, of complexity because in one way you're moving forward in time, but in the other way through the flashbacks, you're moving back in time or the memories. Um, of course, I think the best example of Christopher Nolan's ability to mess with your head is probably Inception. Inception. Yes. Yeah. 
And Inception is probably one of the greatest science fiction films ever made. I agree. I agree. And and movies uh, like that um, still don't get the same kind of recognition. I mean, Interstellar is one of the best science fiction movies as well. Yeah, but like when you look at like its Rotten yeah. Tomatoes rating, it's like seventy five percent. It's because yes, I feel like okay, I understand if it's too complex of a plot where it just becomes like you're trying to focus yeah. on figuring out what's going on. I can understand yeah. why. Okay, maybe you might not be as keen, but like as keen to like watching it. But like okay, for someone like me in a niche, like those movies like make perfect sense, right? So to yeah. an audience member out there, these movies make perfect sense and are like executed to perfection. So it's yeah. kind of like, it's kind of just like measuring, you know. Yes. And a big thing was, uh, for me, the thing that Christopher Nolan should be remembered for is the fact that he showed that superhero movies mm-hmm. could be popular with their fan base and objectively extremely good movies. Exactly. I, think I agree. To this day, the Dark Knight trilogy is considered to be I think still the best superhero movies ever made. Yeah, I think yeah, those movies just show yes. like how serious like a super movie can like a superhero movie can be, right? Yes. Like they, the Dark Knight trilogy movie, like those movies, right? I don't know. I don't know about Batman Begins necessarily, but the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises kind of show like this, like kind of like a different dynamic to a hero, yes. like a superhero and movies. Really important, I think that allowed awards shows to kind of take it seriously is yeah uh was the fact that it was very grounded i mean that's why batman begins is super important for that because yeah. it doesn't uh it's nothing there's nothing supernatural that they show it's, yeah, it's all real all people science, it's all real it's corporate maneuvering it's all through just intelligence of characters there's nothing like say in Marvel, you ha- uh, have no, you know, gods or real Superman. You just have people who have been changed in some way. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? You look at okay, you look at like the base plot point of the Dark Knight per se, right? So here you have this guy, the Joker, right? He's like the main villain of the whole movie, right? And he's kind of like Batman's main villain for like the rest of the trilogy, right? Even in Dark Knight Rises, like you see how it kind of like haunts him, like the changes that the Joker put him through, right? Yes. But regardless, right? You look at like the, the at the base plot point, right? It's about the inequality that exists in Gotham, right? Yeah. And it's kind of like playing off of that, right? It's kind of like telling the rest of Gotham to like start taking, you know, even like this mass like this mass vigilante, like who is he, right? You don't know who he could be, right? It's yeah. basically asking this guy who hides behind a mask, right? And does all these heroic things, admittedly, right? But, like, who is he really? Like, is he exactly. one of you or is he someone else? And, obviously, Bruce Wayne is, like, the richest man in Gotham. Yes. Right? And what was... So it's that kind entire of like, story is really a human story. Yeah. Because it's very much two sides of a coin. It's a concept that's often overused in the Batman mythos that uh, the Joker is just the what if Batman didn't have his rule of no killing. And, But the way that the Dark Knight phrases it is 
what is the difference between uh, good and evil, really? Uh, if we look at how the Joker almost uses some of Batman's own techniques, he creates a following through fear. He's able to convince large numbers, large numbers of people to trust him through his actions. Yeah, but like, who is this guy? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's why one of the smartest things in that movie is that the character of the Joker never has a backstory explained. Mm-hmm. And, and even, what, even if you think you might be able to guess it, the Joker himself disproves it. Yeah, like he has so many, he tells so many conflicting stories about his background yes. that the audience will never get an idea of who he really is. And so the focus is never about who was yeah. the Joker in his past. Like, why is he doing this? The idea is just he is what doing is Batman going to do now? And yeah. he's just doing it, right? Yeah, like the Joker's just doing the things. Yeah, and to get a reaction at the performance it's all he's in that movie is yeah. one of the greatest film performances because oh, yes. like Heath Ledger, yes, yes, Heath Ledger's performance in that movie is one of the best. I mean, that there's a reason why he won a posthumous Oscar. Yeah, yeah. And a big part, though, we've been talking about Christopher Nolan. A big part of Christopher Nolan's movie has also been the music, mm-hmm. and that's a huge thing. If you consider uh, every action movie trailer it's ever since 2010 ha- is known for that big brassy horn sound the yeah. the very low that's all because of Hans Zimmer and that horn sound going throughout the entirety of Inception I mean if we consider just the impact of the music in these movies we go uh, Inception you feel like you're going into a dream uh uh, Inception's theme is well, the closest thing Inception has to a theme, uh, the piece time. It's it's an imp- it's an impressive piece because you lose a sense of time when you're hearing it. It's yeah. In one way, it's discordant, but in another way, it's perfectly harmonious. Yeah, and when you look at something like okay, we talked about Interstellar earlier too. Or right? you look at like the score yes. for that entire piece. So you know, I've done like a lot of like. I, I love that score. I love that entire movie, right? So I've done, like, a lot of research into it and stuff like that. And, you know, one thing, one interesting thing I came across is, like, this idea of how, like, music can be, like, a storytelling device in itself, right? Yes. It kind of amplifies the effect of whatever's exactly. going on. So, so one thing I've heard about Hans Zimmer, and I think it's the greatest description of what he does, is he creates a sound world. Everything in the world is expressed through sound but not objects or people but ideas like Mm -hmm. uh the idea of a dream collapsing in inception that's like a piece it's frantic but it's still got that same inception world feel if you listen to dunkirk everything is a ticking clock the entire piece is a typical ticking clock in fact his music is super layered. There's a technique, no, technique known as a, a shepherd scale where the notes continuously go up, uh, but it's an, uh, it's an auditory illusion. So the notes are not always going up, but your ears are thinking that it's going up because the highest note is being replaced by a low note, but it's a pitch higher so it still sounds to you as if it's going up and it keeps building tension but the way that Zimmer made it is that he's playing that same shepherd scale 
in three different time signatures at three different speeds. So you're hearing all of these different ticking clocks in your head, just adding up the tension. And that's the idea of the movie Dunkirk. The entire movie is a ticking clock of how many people can be saved off the beaches of Dunkirk. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think like you look at like anyone, like a lot of composers are able yes. to do that, but like someone like Hans Zimmer. Yes. And I feel like it's like a fairly like, I feel like his music, at the Hans time, Zimmer's music is very unique. Because... It's very unique, and it's like I think at the time it was considered very experimental. But then at that point, yes. but after a certain point, I think especially after Inception, right? Yes. People started to like, like they got accustomed to it, right? Yes. Like of like the music just like you know amping them up, right? I think yeah. Like there's really after now Inception, it... yeah. after Interstellar, it became like especially the idea of a ticking clock. He employs that in almost every every one of his movies. It, almost every single movie, every single movie that he scores. Now, it, sometimes it's not for the best, but yes, sometimes it's not the best, yeah. right? But because at, uh, the yeah, but you look at like okay, you look at something like Interstellar, and you look at like like that final scene. Like, I don't want to spoil the movie if you haven't seen yeah. it, but you look at that final scene um, when they basically have to like um, when they have to dock. Um, yes, their, uh, that that piece of music if you want to listen to it it's called no time for caution no time for caution and in that scene i think is like the greatest single use of a ticking clock because usually when you look at a ticking clock it's usually like a bomb ticking down right it's letting you know constantly right but it's taking away from other aspects of the story whereas with when you employ the ticking clock with music you're still keeping the same suspense right but now you're also able to visually yes. see other aspects of the story like the ca- actions that the characters are doing right yeah. and i think i think that's just like it's just like genius yes and now hans zimmer's approach of scoring emotion and feeling and theme that's the i believe what i would consider a newer approach the more classic approach is one i believe every single one of you is familiar with if you've heard a theme to a movie uh it's called the approach of leitmotif leitmotif is basically scoring a character uh, or an interaction with characters so if a character comes on screen their theme plays um when you hear think of themes i mean and there's some things that come to mind i mean the star wars theme one of the most iconic of all time Mm -hmm. superman Indiana Jones. Um, I mean, Forrest Gump is one of those themes. Schindler's List is considered to be one of the most beautiful themes of all time. And of course, I don't think there's a person who hasn't heard the Jurassic Park theme. And what do those all have in common? They're all in movies scored by leitmotif, but they're also scored by the same person, John Williams. Mm -hmm. Now, Now, John Williams... Um, I'm pretty sure if uh, plenty has been said about his work with Star Wars. I mean, we may come back to that a bit later. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Can I wait? Yeah. Last question. So John Williams also scored um, Forrest Gump. Yes, he scored. No, no, that's Alan Silvestri. That is my okay. bad. Okay. Alan Silvestri scored the Avengers, but he uses a very similar style to John Williams. Yeah, yeah. I, that was that, I, that. That is my bad. Good catch. Yeah. Um, but uh, John Williams, uh, his style is actually taken from older composers. Uh, so yeah. Eric Korngold is a good example. Uh, he did a movie called King's Row. And John Williams, yeah. basically, with permission from the uh, Korngold estate, uh, basically repurposed it and made it into the Star Wars theme. 
And that's, I mean, as George Lucas himself said, uh, Star Wars works because of John Williams' music. But we're going to come back to Star Wars at the end because that's the part I believe both of us have the most knowledge. But I think the more interesting scores of his to talk about, I'd say is uh, Schindler's List. Schindler's List. Is one of the best scores ever put to film. I mean there's a great so story Steven, Steven Spielberg asked John Williams to score it and John Williams said I don't think there's a uh, composer alive who could do this properly and uh, Steven Spielberg said I know that's why I'm asking you and I mean, he did it and yeah. he, was like, he he took like like the musicians that he asked like for like yes. the solos and whatnot and like this is specific solo for the Schindler's List it's done the, by a violinist Isaac Perlin it's yes, done and, by Itzhak Perlman, who was directly and, affected by the um, Holocaust. I mean, I don't know how old he is now or how old he was at the time. Yeah, but he was a refugee, and he came like uh, he, he's from Austria, I think, right? Yeah. And so he said, like, no, I, I don't think anyone else could have done this. Yeah. Like, it's it's so emotional. Like, you can like be, like you can hear like the theme, like the violin. It's like it sounds like someone's crying. But it's yeah. not like in a bad way. It's just like super emotional. It's, it's very solemn. It's very solemn. And, it's not and, like a happy piece. The whole movie's not happy. Yeah. Yeah. They, none of the movie is happy. But the fact is, the way Williams scores accentuates the, uh, the character's performances. And it's a really big thing. That's why, I mean, Liam Neeson is one of the best actors of that era and is one of, you know, he's now more known for action movies. But. Liam Neeson in Schindler's List is one of the best film performances ever. And mm-hmm. whenever the music is put on to Liam Neeson's character of uh, Oscar Schindler, you feel what Oscar Schindler is feeling because he, John Williams is expressing the character in a single piece of music. That's what John Williams ha- has mastered the art of doing, uh, expressing characters through music. So there, that's Oscar Schindler. Um, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, you have the legendary Indiana Jones theme. And mm-hmm. the thing is, it, 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 it's his character in a nutshell. It's adventurous. It has no fear. It's, but it's also at the same time, it's careful. It's, it's calculated in areas. Um, yeah. It's hopeful. Yeah, that's, like, that's an interesting point to bring up, right? So whereas like Hans Zimmer is like uses music to tell the story, um, John Williams will tell will use the music to represent the characters, the idea more. Yes, yeah. he and, uses it yeah. to develop the character, which in a yeah. way is also considered a storytelling technique. Yes, I mean there's a reason why um, he's worked with uh, Steven Spielberg on all but maybe one or two films. There's a reason he's worked with George Lucas on about every film George Lucas has done. Mm-hmm. There's, um, in case you didn't know, John Williams has, I believe, the most Oscar nominations of any living person. He's, he's one of those prolific film composers, so keeping this discussion limited would be very difficult. But uh, the fact is, it's proof that his style of composition works. Now, obviously, he borrows a lot from other previous composers, but while he does that, he does make it his own, mm-hmm. uh, which I'll 
once again, I'll get into when we get to Star Wars itself. Yeah, and you look at like composers yeah. like John Williams, like all of these people have like derived inspiration from, yes. from like earlier film composers, like Eric exactly. Holm, like Corn- and you might not think it, but like a lot of the classical composers that you might know, especially from like the nineteen fifties onwards, they all compose music for films. Like people like Shostakovich. Um, yes. Like and he said earlier, Eric Korngold, all these people. Yes, and you know, Sergei Prokofiev. Yeah, uh, Sergei Prokofiev actually scored a film. Yeah, and these are all just big, big things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, even back in the day, Mozart himself. Most of Mozart's most famous pieces are like from operas. Uh, they're every almost always music was commissioned for some other purpose. Music just for the artist expression is more of a secondary thing. Mozart, I believe, is probably the one who championed it the best with 41 symphonies, I believe. Yeah. But uh, but now, like, getting back into modern era, I mean, the Jurassic Park theme, if I want to bring that one up, that theme has obviously some great memes, but uh, it has... What, it's one of the most just pieces of astonishment but in my opinion outside of star wars his best work is in a lesser known movie known as close encounters of the third kind and there's a specific scene in that movie where there's a group of people uh who have discovered some extraterrestrials and they find out that these extraterrestrials compose or communicate only through music so basically, Steven Spielberg there is asking Williams to do the entire storytelling of that scene through music. So it starts off with difficulty in communication. So the, uh, the aliens communicate, the humans communicate back. And it's slow. It's a learning process, as if the aliens are just teaching the human computer to how to respond. And it slowly becomes more and more. It slowly adds up. The pieces become faster and faster. It slowly becomes a symphony. And it's entirely done through music. There's almost no dialogue in that entire scene. It is just lights and music. And that's just, I believe, just a mastery of the craft and a trust in your composer. And this is only 1977 or 76. This is the very beginning, basically, of his career. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, his career really began, like, what, 19, like, at least composing, like, film music? Like, I'd say, like, 1971, right? Yeah, Jaws was probably his first big one. When did Jaws come out? I do not recall, but that was his, probably his first foray onto, like, the big scene. I mean, Jaws, obviously, that two notes has inspired. Dude, you know, you know, you can make the exact same theme out of any, like, note progression. Like, yeah, but any two notes, and yet he did it just so well. Yeah, I think any whole step works. Yeah, and of course, Superman. Superman is the definition of an American theme, and I'll explain this just very quickly. And also, how uh, Avengers Endgame copies this strategy. <laughs> All right, go for it. Yeah, so the, the most American piece of music overall is the idea of the march, almost no other. Uh, culture is so obsessed with the idea of marching music as the U.S. I mean, we have the obsession with the marching bands, a huge part of our uh, American football culture, especially at the college and high school levels. And 
that idea is very much of a drumline and brass. Now, then what John Williams does is he actually creates a, he actually refers to a piece called uh, Fanfare for the Common Man. And the piece, it starts with one brass that plays something. Then the rest of the brass joins in. So in Surance, ba, 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 ba. And then the entire orchestra joins in. And you start having these instruments add in. And the way the score works is it, it keeps the march feeling, even through uh, Superman's love theme and Superman's march. All through each of his different parts of his theme, you have the march underneath it that's just showing you just what kind of superhero he is. He's, you know, as he says in the movie, he fights for truth, justice, and the American way. I mean, the march is the American music. And then in Avengers Endgame, there's a piece called Portals. And it starts with the exact same thing, a single brass line. Then the entire orchestra comes in and it starts driving into a very, very powerful march. But yeah, if like we're going to be talking, yes. Yeah. Now, if we're going to be talking about marches, there's only one march that it, by John Williams that that really matters. Yes, the Imperial March. That piece of music is considered to be one of his best pieces. I mean, it's it conveys the just overwhelming ferocity of the uh, Galactic Empire. It shows. Uh, they're evil without uh, a single word. And something that John Williams does that's incredibly impressive is he never uses voices, almost never. There's only three pieces in all of his entire work that I can ever think of which have actual voices, which is extremely impressive for a man of his body of work. But if we go to his themes, every character in Star Wars has a recognizable theme. Yeah. Uh, for example, Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, his theme is what we now call the Force theme. Originally, you know, they didn't know Star Wars would be more than one movie. So it was the Force theme. The idea of, since uh, Obi-Wan was the only Jedi, every time Obi-Wan shows up, you play that piece of music. Then when Yoda shows up, how do we show him doing the same things as Obi-Wan? Okay, let's make this theme now the Force. Or Princess the Leia's pr- theme. Yeah. Oh, Princess Leia's theme is considered amazing. John Williams never overuses a piece of music. Yeah, only when it's necessary, like to introduce the character. Or he'll he'll just ever use it once in the entire like film series, you know, but that's not an issue. Yeah, there's uh, an amazing piece uh, called Luke and Leia's theme. It is only played two times in the entire saga. Of Star Wars, all nine films. It is only played in episode six and episode eight. And the fact is, by only playing it so little, you instantly remember where it comes from. Because, I mean, the original three Star Wars films are something that are ingrained in our collective consciousness. Yeah, they're like cult classics, bro. Yes. That first trilogy. Yeah, and the idea of... Um, of 
the idea of just that uh, light motif for each character, Han and Leia's theme, it mixes, it it has it softens Han's uh, excitement, and it brings it more to Leia's calm uh, and you know powerful character level. It shows. Um, then of course, there's. Where um yeah, of course there's the main Star Wars theme, which is probably yeah. extremely recognizable. But where I want to go into for Star Wars is something that John Williams and Star Wars do better than pretty much every other franchise: intercutting fights. So this is where credit goes to George Lucas, the cinematographers, to the all the other people who are part of it and mm-hmm. bring different fights together. Despite all of the complaints for the uh, the prequel movies, one thing that nobody complains about are the fights at the end of the movies. In uh, Phantom Menace, you have the intercutting of the Battle of Naboo, or the Battle of Naboo in space, and the fight between Obi-Wan Kenobi, Qui-Gon Jinn, and Darth Maul. Yet, yeah. lose focus, ever. In uh, the Last Jedi, you have to intercut between the characters and then the larger fight on the Battle of Crate. You never lose focus there. Of course, there's plenty of debate on that scene, but the fact is, you still, your interest is held. And I think the best example of this is probably Return of the Jedi, where you have three different battles one between Luke Skywalker. Vader and uh, and Vader, which is the emotional core of the entire saga. Then you have the space battle with, uh, which is just massive in scale as Star Wars does. And then you have the ground battle on the forest moon of Endor. Now, here's where I'm going to start. Um, enough has been said, I believe, about the original trilogy of music. Mm-hmm. There's quite a there's quite a bit of music. Uh, the original trilogy is extremely appreciated just because of the fact that John Williams created the sound of space and how we feel about it. Yeah, like all even like I don't know about like all like the sound effects and stuff. If like the composers have much of an issue, no, like, no. Like a, I'm talking it? about physically what we think about when we see of space. Is defined. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. I was thinking more along the lines yeah. of like, yeah, no. is, uh, my bad. No, my bad, coach. What I'm gonna go with is in the Phantom Menace, what is considered to be John Williams' best piece in outside of the Imperial March. It's a piece known as Duel of the Fates. Mm-hmm. Now, Duel of the Fates is important for a couple things. It's it's one of John Williams' only use of voice. The only other times are. Um, the Emperor's theme and then a fight will come into again and what he does is uh, this is actually uh, something I learned from a a YouTube channel called Sideways Um, but and basically he's using a technique to drive the fight called uh, called a rhythmic ostinato and effectively, it's just a little five-note sequence of, mm-hmm. and it rises to the entire fight, keeps you on edge, 
And it's and the music in that fight is a living organism, just like the fight itself. It grows with the fight. It becomes adds more and more instruments. Then when the fight stops, the music stops. John Williams, one thing he's underappreciated for is knowing when to stop the music. And yeah, and he'll, and he'll pick it back up again as part of the yes, same piece. Exactly, and then the piece builds itself up again, and then it yeah. rips itself apart, and it feels like it's doing that like naturally. And what's important about the voices is he thinks about the voices very deliberately. So what the voices are saying in that song is actually a Sanskrit translation of, I believe, a Celtic or a Welsh poem called The Battle of the Trees. And it's, a, it's literally the fight between good and evil. And George Lucas would later say that that fight literally defines the entire saga because if the character of Qui-Gon Jinn survives he would be the one who trains Anakin Skywalker and he would likely have not turned evil Mm -hmm. because he would have seen that character as a father figure but instead he sees uh, Palpatine uh, who later becomes the Emperor as a father figure and thus falls to evil yeah and then the other piece I want to talk about is one of John Williams, in my opinion, his best uses of borrowing from another score. So uh, in The Last Jedi, there's a scene where Luke Skywalker walks out in front of you know the entire antagonist forces, the First Order. However, there's a piece of music, it's a driving piece of music known as the spark. And it's... Uh, and it's a very it's a simple three note phrase it goes uh, low high then it drops again and what someone uh, found out in fact is that it's almost the same as a piece of uh, uh about where the ghost of agamemnon shows up in a stage play and the idea is that John Williams right there is cueing the viewer in super in a super discreet manner that uh, the character of Luke Skywalker is not actually there. Just like the character of Agamemnon is a ghost in that play. And I feel John Williams understanding so much of the history is what makes his uh, score so good. But in terms of, I think, film overall, a big thing is something that composers look at is how how composers look at how can I make this feel how, how can I make the viewer feel more there. So I wanted to actually talk about a technique uh, in terms of, called framing for how um, filmmakers uh, you know put you into a scene. So I think we're gonna go for this. I'd like to go back to the dark knight there's uh samir i think you know this scene what scene i'm probably going to go into but there's a scene where uh batman and the joker are in the same room Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and so this is an interrogation now a technique used by filmmakers is something known as shot reverse shot if you're uh if characters are facing each other you film one character over one shoulder and you film the other character over the other shoulder so you easily know who's talking without even having to look at them 
Yeah. I think you've seen this in conversations. Now, what Nolan does here to get the the audience, he trusts your, the audience. That's something Nolan does very well. He trusts the audience isn't dumb. <laughs> and what he does there is he actually assumes, you know, the audience, you've seen enough movies, you've seen this, whether you recognize it as shot reverse shot or not, doesn't matter. What matters is you recognize that one character is from one point of view, the other is from another. Now, what he does is he shifts the camera. So it mixes the characters together. As the camera shifts from one shoulder to another, Joker doesn't look so different from Batman. Batman doesn't look so much different from the Joker. And this is some uh, one of those important things in film that, you know, that goes underappreciated. The framing. Uh, Samir, you have any shots you wanted to talk about? Any shots in the Dark Knight specifically or just... Or just in general. Because I feel like it's so little uh, is understood about, you know, just how much... How many little tricks these directors and cinematographers have. Um... Okay, uh, here's a here's a here's a particular trick. I so said this is another Nolan trick, a Christopher Nolan trick, right? So the idea is, so Anish kind of went into this idea like, um, I think it was in the Phantom Menace, right? How they're switching from the fight between the Jedi and the Sith, right? And then the fight of the citizens and the um, and the soldiers of on Naboo versus um, yeah the uh, thing, right? And um, here's the thing that Nolan does. It's kind of similar, right? But you'll notice it. And um, okay, and we'll use the Dark Knight just to keep some sort of continuity. So at the end of the movie, there's two things going on, right? And it kind of branches off in the final and like in the climax. So um, the Joker is essentially taking hostages, right? And he's taking hostages and he's basically threatening. Um, two groups of people. He's threatening regular citizens who are trying to evacuate the city, um, you know, because of the impending danger, like the danger that the Joker poses. And then there's also they're also evacuating um, prisoners from Gotham prisons, right? And so he kind of the Joker kind of presents like this moral dilemma to the people. Um, and so in order to stop the Joker, the Batman goes in. Right. And he's trying to take down the Joker. Right. So and they have this fight. Right. But interspersed in between this fight and even interspersed with the the with like the decisions that the people are making on the boats is this other um, I guess you could say a side story, but it's also very relevant. Right. Because it's kind of like the it's kind of like the culmination of everything that's happened in the movie. Right. Is finally happening in one character, which is Two-Face or otherwise known as. Harvey Dent, right? And off to the side, Harvey Dent captures and he he essentially kidnaps and is threatening Jim Gordon, who is the police commissioner at the time. Um, he's threatening the family of Jim Gordon and basically tells the commissioner, if you don't show up alone, um, your family's gonna die. Right? And so now there's this struggle, there's there's three there's there's three struggles that are going on. One is the moral is the moral dilemma that is pre- that is presented to the um, prisoners and the citizens, right? Which is to basically blow up one another's boats. Otherwise, both boat, otherwise both boat, boat, uh, both boats 
are going to blow up. Right? Um, it's the final fight between the Batman and the Joker. And then it's this race uh, against time, right? Basically, Jim Gordon has, I think, five to ten minutes um, to show up to uh, to, the lo- to the location where um, Harvey is keeping um, Gordon's kids, right? And um, uh, and basically, the way that it's shot is it kind of cuts between all three scenes simultaneously, right? Yeah. And then once one situation clears, it becomes like it's kind of, it comes kind of like this like back and forth shot, right? So the first situation that comes to an end is the um, moral dilemma that's presented to the prisoners, um, yeah. because one of the because one of the pr- prisoners just throws out the uh, detonator, right? Basically saying, "Okay, if anyone dies, it's going to be us. If not, it'll be the other. Um, if yeah. not, it'll be the and, other boat too, right?" Which is really ironic scene. Yeah, and then well, what ends up happening is the Joker is the one who is in charge of the detonator. Right for both boats. So if he clicks that button, both boats will explode. Right, and so Batman is also trying to prevent this from happening. So, so once that moral dilemma is stops being shown to to like the audience, right now the focus is put on Jim Gordon trying to save his family and um, Batman trying to save the citizens from the Joker clicking the button, right, and also trying to defeat the Joker in the process, right. And so the next situation that's shown to us, like the next situation that's cleared is the Joker being defeated. And that's, it's a very good fight. I will admit in terms of superhero fights, because it's very, um, uh, I, I guess you could gritty. it's very gritty. It's a very gritty fight even for the Batman and the Joker. Um, and then once that situation comes to an end and the shots, the shot now focuses on like the real climax of the movie, which is, um, basically Batman versus you have one hero of justice who does his things his way versus another hero of justice, Harvey Dent, right? Who used to be the DA before a freak accident. Um, but once again, you have to watch the movie um, to understand all of that. Um, but it essentially becomes two heroes of justice, right? One has gone bad and the other is trying to fight for what's right while still doing the right thing. Right, but in the end, um, that situation comes to an end when Harvey Dent dies. Um, I'm spoiling a lot of the movie here. Honestly, I think we warned you of spoilers at the beginning of the podcast, so that's besides the point. And um, Batman is branded as a murderer because he takes and the by his own choice. Yeah, yeah. And he, yeah, and he does it because and he does it because he wants to. I don't. He, he wants to take the blame for it. He wants to make sure that Harvey Dent remains that symbol of hope. He, he, yeah, he remains the symbol of hope. He remains the hero that he was, right? And he kind of, and he kind of does it so the people don't become disheartened, right? Here you have this guy who did things the right way, right? Harvey Dent did it through the justice system. But he still understood the, like, the necessity of the Batman. So it's not like he hated the Batman like maybe the rest of the police did or whatever, right? Um... So he kind of wanted that image of Harvey Dent to stay intact. And that's why he made it seem like the Batman is the murderer and not the other way around. So, yeah, I feel like that. But that storytelling technique of, you know, cutting between the shots and finally putting the focus on what is 
like on like the real um emergency is like pivotal like yeah it's like it's a very good storytelling technique and he does it in all of his movies like christopher nolan he does it in um inception he does it in he doesn't do it as well in interstellar because there's no like real high stakes yeah except i mean i guess there is but there's still like it's less of a conflict it's not, it's, it, it, yeah it's less of a conflict and it's less yeah. immediate it's less yeah. immediate when he has a conflict he does it well because yeah. i mean the i mean batman begins is an amazing example of that yeah so i of course I just... yeah it's it, we just wanted to have you know a podcast episode after the oscars and just you know talk about what we enjoy about movies so i hope you all enjoyed oh yeah same i i enjoyed this conversation this was this was very good and it's very similar to like a couple of the other um talks that anisha and i have so this felt very natural yeah um so i guess we'll i don't know when we want to put out the next episode We'll probably do it tomorrow or Wednesday. Yeah. Most likely Wednesday, I think is a good is a good uh, yeah day. But yeah, so stay tuned for that episode. We're gonna talk about something that's probably a bit more relevant. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I feel like this was a good talk. It's just something entertaining that people can uh, listen to, or uh, maybe fall asleep to if you were bored. But uh, yeah. That was food for that was the food for thought podcast episode two. The title is yet to be de- uh, is to be determined. Um, we hope you all enjoyed. Um, signing off. This is Samir Alpati. This is Anish. All right, and we will see you on the next episode. See you, or you can. Uh, it, it, the technicalities don't really matter. Well, just saying. Stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you. <laughs>